When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Way's View from the Clock End podcast. Joining you after a brief hiatus has been pretty hectic, of course, with plenty of midweek fixtures going on around the club. But uh, with, of course, us now top of the table, five points clear, legitimately, we should say, now an equal amount of games played with Manchester City after winning against Everton last night. We're bringing back the pods and hopefully more regularly too as well. As always, I'm joined by Arsenal Chief Reporter Kai Karnak. How are you doing, mate? You good, Joel? I'm very good. I'm very good. It was a late one last night after the uh, Everton game, as we were just discussing before we came on. But as long as Arsenal keep winning, I don't think we mind a few more late nights. Uh, just keep the points coming and we'll stay up as late as we have to. Absolutely, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> I really could do an all-nighter if it meant Arsenal guaranteeing <laughs> three points, to be honest. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it is, it's those evening games. I remember we were both at the Etihad and we're going to do that again, you know, later in this season. That was a... That was another late one, and arguably this one would be even later because I think that game kicked off at like a weird time in the FA Cup, wasn't it? It was like a, uh, is it like a seven o'clock one. or something. I think this is an eight fifteen one as well because it's a BT wow. game. So yeah, fun stuff. But you know, it's a it's nicer problem to have as the journalists here at the game. So I don't think we can mm. complain. No, absolutely. Indeed. Um, of course, last night you were there, as you say, a 4-0 win over Everton. What's your breakdown analysis of the fixture? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 well known by this point to those who saw the game which in the uk was not many on tv due to the uh very strange broadcast rules we have over here but uh obviously it was a difficult first 40 minutes for arsenal they struggled to break everton down and for a while it did look like a repeat of the goodison park game in a sense that the midfield wasn't quite clicking a few of the passes were a bit over here a bit under here just things weren't quite working i thought the left side wasn't really in use that much and they didn't really have much threat in the middle because Everton's defenders are so big. And I think when you're Trossard, Martinelli, Saka, sort of relatively in comparison, diminutive players, it's very difficult, obviously, to, to beat them physically. So you have to try and get them with intelligent movement. And eventually that's what they did. And that pass from Alex Zinchenko through to Bukayo Saka is superb on the 40th minute. And from that point on, it was just a case of there only being one winner, really. And I think, obviously, the second goal coming right on the stroke of half-time helped in the sense that Arsenal then went in knowing that the game was almost won pretty much. Everton came back out, brought on another centre-back for a midfielder. Clearly, they wanted to damage limitations as much as possible. It didn't work because Arsenal went on to score another two. And yeah, the team's looking really confident. If you contrast that to Arsenal's last midweek Wednesday game in the Premier League at the Emirates when they played Man City, and I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is the end of Arsenal's Premier League title race only, what, two, three weeks later, and suddenly Arsenal are five points clear at the, the top of the league. So I think we're, we're seeing how quickly things change in the Premier League. And, yeah, it was another really impressive performance from Arsenal last night. And the kind of performance against a lesser team that you sort of need to show the rest of the Premier League, look, we're here to be taken seriously. Arsenal are here to be, you know, challenging for the top of the Premier League. And, you know, they're going to try and win it as well. Yeah, they really are. Um, it, it's like, I talked about this yesterday, it's kind of uh, on our match reaction show on the Arsenal way about how, you know, everyone's kind of looked at that game in hand and just thought, it's three points, you know, we're going to get three points in this. So they're treating as if we're already five points clear of City. And, you know, you have to do the business. And after about 30 minutes, I was thinking, oh, this, you know, it's it's not proving as as simple as, as maybe a lot of people thought it would. But it is almost like with those teams, like we saw against Brentford I suppose it took so long to get that goal and of course we all know what happened after that but the Everton game the Newcastle game with how stubborn they played as well defensively too once you get a goal like and you break down you you find your way through the kind of the uh the the defensive barrier that, that's in play it obviously opens up the game so much more and at the start of the season Arsenal were doing really well at getting a goal quite early on in games and that opened up the game a lot more and Arsenal found themselves picking up points more simply why do you think it's maybe been that Arsenal have struggled more recently to get that early goal to break down the defences sooner and then open up the game more? Um, 
I think maybe teams are coming to the Emirates with a bit more of a, an obvious game plan to try and stop Arsenal, and well, in mm. all games, actually. Um, but I do wonder if maybe fatigue's playing a part of it. Maybe sometimes Arsenal are starting games having played just two, three days before, whereas the start of the season they weren't. But I don't know. It's a very difficult one to put an exact science to that. I think it's not as if Arsenal aren't creating chances, but you're right. I think they, they started a little slowly against Everton, a little slowly against Aston Villa. Obviously, a little slowly last night, slow against Brentford in the game before that as well. So, yeah, there's 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 something going on there. I don't quite know uh, what that is. Uh, I, I could try and come up with some explanations, but I'd be guessing, to be honest, it's, it's very difficult to say. Obviously, at the start of the season, there was that intensity going into games and they were raring to go and the momentum was high and maybe something to do with the pressure, whereas they're, they're approaching games with a bit more caution now and maybe not wanting to throw sort of to the wind if you like and go the hell for leather from the beginning but yeah it's it's an interesting interesting observation that but I, I i wouldn't quite know how to explain it unfortunately i don't know if you've got a better explanation than me but i just i can't really i can't really put my finger on it yeah i mean i think there's something to be said about the how many fixtures we're playing in such a sport short space of time between one another now um and obviously when arteta is a coach that doesn't particularly like to make wholesale changes between games maybe less so than than, uh, than guardiola's done in recent seasons where you can kind of keep the team fresh and not see the level drop because he's got a, he's very loyal to his starting 11 and he kind of i think he looks at starting 11 and thinks he can maybe change one or two as we've started to see and you don't see the level drop too much but even then when you've got a game every three and a bit days you, I think at the start of games in particular, there is something to be said about making sure that you've got enough energy to spread across the entire game rather than blowing it all in the first 30 minutes and then say, if you don't score, you find yourselves leggy towards the end. And and, and would there maybe not necessarily as much trust in, in those that may come off the bench later on to get the job done? We're starting maybe games a little bit slower and trying to then see out the games throughout the entire 90 rather than blitzing the first 30 and then having questions if it doesn't necessarily work out in our favour. So I think maybe there's something to be said about that. But also what you said about teams coming up tactically to, to set up and defend and, and try and frustrate Arsenal has certainly worked. Uh, and it's worked for Everton and it's worked for Brentford. It worked for Newcastle earlier this season. It worked for arguably Southampton in the latter stages of that game, even though we did get the first goal in that, that fixture. But I think that ultimately Arsenal needed momentum and needed to find a win. It kind of goes to show if we just hop back briefly to that goal from, well, Emmy Martinez, I was going to say Jorginho then, but I would be taking credit away from that brilliant header uh, from our former goalkeeper. If we don't score that, could I mean, could that prove to be the most pivotal point potentially in Arsenal's season, that last-minute win against Villa that's seen us go on this three-game winning run now? Uh, it's impossible to say now, isn't it? Uh, yeah. But it's big for sure. It's definitely it's changed the momentum around the place. I think the the positive vibes that came from that Aston Villa win have certainly fueled the uh, the wins mm. that we've seen since Leicester. I think obviously Arsenal went into it. If they'd gone into it having drawn that game two two and there'd been no win in five, then suddenly there would have been loads of pressure on the Leicester game. Going Arsenal have to win this. This is massive for them. And the game in hand, they wouldn't have been on top of the Premier League going into the game in hand. So it would have been more difficult for them to to maybe claim the, the victory and yeah, it would have been a lot more pressure, but Arsenal have proven they're pretty good at dealing with pressure so far this season. Obviously there's been a few games where maybe things haven't gone to plan, but generally they've reacted well to setbacks and that's the sign of, in my opinion, a title winning team. And I don't want to um, jinx it at all, but I do think that, yeah, things haven't gone well at times for Arsenal this season. And I've seen some, some interesting social media clips this morning from people saying that Arsenal have been very lucky this year. I don't know if you've seen that one, Tom. <laughs> yes, um, but um, I, yeah. without without coming across too sordid, there's sometimes I just look at I read like a view on Arsenal, and I or I see a video on Arsenal. I'm like, I feel as though that's designed just purely to get a reaction because so. we are as Arsenal fans very reactionary. Yes. Uh, you know if. We're a fisherman's dream as a as a fan base. So, yeah. I, I, it's it's been that way, you know. I've seen, and it's not just obviously from single uh, outlets. I think across the board, you know, whenever Arsenal have done well, there's been criticism. When Arsenal are doing badly, there's more obvious criticism, and maybe there's. You know, maybe the the idea of praising doesn't sell as much as to rile up as a fan base as much as ours. And unfortunately, I think that's where we see 
you know, opinions drawn out that way. Thankfully, there are people out there, you know, I'd like to think that ourselves included to, you know, really fly the flag of Arsenal's positivity and, and the really good things that we've done so far this season as Wait well. Wait till you hear part two. It's non-stop negativity on the way. It's just <laughs> criticism, criticism, criticism. It's all coming. Yeah, it's yeah. coming. Um, but no... I mean, what do you do? You think Arsenal have been fortunate at all with with the? No, that's all we need to do. Number one signing and their best striker out for half the season. Yeah. They've had their most important midfielder, Thomas Partey, out for large portions of the season. Out for two massive games against Manchester yeah. United and Manchester City. Um, you know, they came up against Everton, for example, in the away game. Just as Sean Dyche had taken over, just as good as St. Parker had been revitalised. And that's before we even get onto VAR, which has had to apologise to Arsenal twice this season for costing them points. So been three, I'm not saying Arsenal are more unlucky or less unlucky than than any side, really, because I think every, mm. every team gets their share of bad luck. But I think you know you could go through every single team and, and make a list of oh X played Y without this certain player available, and it would suddenly make it look as if every Premier League team that's ever won the league has been lucky. I think you could argue. Oh, Manchester City were lucky because um, in the seasons they've won the league, sometimes the competition hasn't been strong. Or Leicester were lucky because in the season they won the league, the rest of the division wasn't up to scratch. I don't buy that. You still have to win games. You still have to be resilient. You still have to be relentless and you still have to be consistent. And Arsenal have been all those things despite some pretty obvious setbacks. And like you say, I think we should we should call that, that, uh, that out for what it is in terms of obvious bait to try and, uh, I think, you know, antagonise Arsenal fans and, a lot of them will go for it. Um, I wish they wouldn't because it will keep happening until until they stop. And it's just the, it's the first rule of first rule of sort of bullying, isn't it? It's sort of don't don't give them the satisfaction. That's what you're taught yeah. to play around and uh, you ignore them long enough, they'll go away. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I I don't ever see that happening. Um, and you know we are a sucker for for being wound up um, sometimes. But look. There is so much to enjoy about Arsenal at the moment. Don't let these, you know, people that are trying to detract away from the positivity and the success of this season so far get to you because, that as we've said, you know, go and watch some clips of Peter Drury commentating on Arsenal's brilliance this season. That will cheer you up in an instant, I promise you. Um, let's go into some more individual things, you know, about the game. Um, I, I, I want to talk about some things in part two regarding the forwards, so we'll save that. But I was talking this morning... Uh, as a hot take at the moment. For me, Gabriel Magalhaes is the Premier League's best defender. Tell me if you think any different. Um, I would agree, but I do think in the biggest game of Arsenal season so far, yeah. he had his poorest game of the season so far. Yeah, he did. And yeah. But I'm not seeing anyone out there who I'd say has necessarily been better than him. So I guess it's hard to refute your argument apart from the fact that in the most stressful high intensity game Arsenal played this season, he he did, you know, fail to to live up to the standards he set for himself. So it'll be really interesting to see how he copes going to the Etihad, seeing how he plays in that game. If he comes back and has a really impressive game against them, then I think, yeah, definitely it's hard to come up with a, a better Premier League centre back this season. But um you talk about doing it against the biggest teams and against your biggest rivals, that's when you need your biggest players to step up. And he didn't quite against City in the home game, but what he's shown throughout his career is that he learns quickly. If you remember when he first came, his first season at Arsenal, he was rash. He was getting sent off. He was going into tackles that he shouldn't have been going in, giving away penalties, making errors, leading to goals. And you look at the players in this Arsenal back line now, and you do feel comfortable with him there. You feel very calm. He's not getting physically beaten by any striker. Erling Haaland, you know, did his best, but I'd say that was a pretty even duel for the most part. And beyond that, there's not too many strikers that can really cause Gabriel too many problems. Maybe Ivan Tony gave him a few issues, but that's, you know, one out of 20. It's not too bad. And he's quick. His passing has become a lot better, I think. I think he's getting a lot better at distributing from the back. And um, when 1v1 one, one tackles, he's, he's excellent. And there was an incident last night where uh, Mope got into the box and I think, you know, it could have potentially led to a goal. And this is when the scores were at nil-nil and, and Gabriel comes in with a fantastic tackle, covering for William Saliba. And yeah, before you know it, he's it's it's Arsenal keeping another clean sheet. And we've, we've given William Saliba a lot of flowers this year. And a lot of people have said he's the best centre-back in the league. I'd argue that of the two, Gabriel has established himself as the leader within that group and you'd expect him to as the more senior player with the more experience. But 
I think he's probably shown that he's maybe more consistent at the two centre-backs. I know we said he had a poor game against City, but beyond that, it's hard to remember the last time he had a poor game. So I think he's been superb for Arsenal and he's been a big part of their push to the title. And, you know, if they do win the Premier League, then he deserves as many plaudits as anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I can't be refuted at all. I think he's been really good. I think it's it's fair to point out the City game. I think he actually had a good game at City, ironically, in the FA Cup uh, yeah. as well. Um, he did well in that game, and and hopefully he'll use that experience coming forwards. We talk about how he was rash and give away penalties. He was doing that, to be fair, a little bit at the start of the season when he gave the penalty away against uh, Fulham. Uh, was it Fulham? Um, no, it was the mistake against Mitrovic, but he gave a penalty away against Spurs, yes, uh, in that game. But obviously had the mistake against Mitrovic and then scored in that game at the end to, to claim all three points for Arsenal against Fulham. So he does learn. He does respond. And that's something I think I, I was talking this morning with Alfie about how if you think back to, because I feel like this run of um, kind of favourable fixtures that we've got coming up kind of leads us to the Anfield game against Liverpool where we've not won there since 2012. And we've always kind of had full storms sometimes at Anfield, it feels, in the last few years. And I remember when we scored in 2018 with Maitland-Niles under Uno Emery and we thought, oh, maybe maybe we might get something. And then went on to lose 5-1. The back line that day, I mean, I told Alfie this morning, so I don't know if you tuned in, but can you name the back four? Can you try and think back to 2018? Uh, Have a go. So Mustafi would have been playing. Yep. Uh, would Licksteiner have played? Yep. Yeah, uh, Monreal. Not Monreal. The other. The last the other one. Yeah. And Socrates. Give you a, yes. I was going to say, I'll give you a clue. He gave away a penalty. Oh, well, well. Um, so that was our back four uh, with Leno in goal as well. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of shows you the difference now when you've got Gabriel, Zinchenko, Saliba, Ben White, you know, and Ramsdale, yeah. you know, between the sticks. And it's also Gabriel clearly has a massive influence on the pitch. You talk about uh, people who are talking quite sort of, comedically he's, he's he doesn't seem like the guy who would but he's got quite a high-pitched voice and that does tend to uh sort of the frequency for some reason in my ears i tend to hear it above the enriched crowd i can hear him shouting and screaming in a way I can't, maybe he's just loud i don't know but i, I can yeah. hear him in a way that i can't hear other players and uh not because of that but he's a player i'd love to get in the next zone at some point just to, just to hear what he has to say i'd love to be able to talk to him or interview him i know his his english language is is getting better yeah, from bringing people around the club i think he's perfectly capable of communicating you know in english and clearly is is one of the leaders in the back line and i think him and saliba talk in french maybe because gabriel obviously spent time in lille but yeah i think um yeah that's the the he's definitely someone who i'd like to hear what he has to say on a few things because i think it'd be a really interesting interview and you know I'm sure there's no one from the Arsenal Commons department watching, but if they are, then, you know, please make Gabriel available in the mix zone at some point. I think he'd be a fantastic interview and I'd love to hear what he has to say because he's he's clearly a big influence on the pitch and I think the rest of the Arsenal squad really listen to what he has to say. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be interesting actually to, to hear what he says. He very rarely does those types of interviews. So, uh, obviously, the confidence in English, I, I'm sure, plays a part, but we'll see. Martinelli is, I remember when Martinelli sat down ahead of the Zurich game and he brought a translator into the room and didn't use him. <laughs> he just sat there kind of silently throughout the whole thing. So, you know, clearly they are, uh, uh, yeah, do a lot of work on improving their communication and uh, and Gabriel's been there a while now. So, hopefully, he can start putting some, some good responses together. We'll have to wait and see. Um, Obviously, there's there's more since we've done our last show that's happened. Uh, he scored our first goal last night, Bakaya Saka, and suggestions are indeed that he has agreed a, a contract in principle uh, with the club, and we're just kind of waiting for uh, the final kind of pieces of the puzzle to fall in place and then an eventual official announcement on that. I mean, how big of a plus is that? Uh, Ramsdale spoke interestingly about it after the game last night, saying he said something on the lines of he said he felt he could have had a, like eight days left and he'd still be confident he was signing a new deal. Yeah. Um, so let's just go through the, the story on Saka. Obviously, what we've reported on FL is that it's close, but it's still not quite done. And that's what I've, I've heard from people speaking to them sort of close around the deal. It's not quite finalised, but it's looking positive. And I think that was one that was always a case of when rather than if when it came to Bakaya Saka, because he wants to stay. Arsenal want to keep him. Arsenal can afford to keep him. And yeah, you know, it's it's looking really positive. The the deal will see him become one of Arsenal's highest paid players. It will be a long term contract as well. So meetings were had between I think Edu Richard Garlic and his sort of representative, Saka's representatives, last Thursday it was when all the uh the reports started coming out and then, you know, 
it gets it gets its way out there after that. And I think, yeah, it's massive news for Arsenal if they're able to tie down Makaya Saka because I, I don't just think he's one of the best young players in the Premier League. I think he's one of the best players in the Premier League, full stop. And when it comes to that player of the season conversation at the end of the year, he'll definitely be involved. I think he's almost certainly nailed on to be Arsenal's player of the season, um, unless, you know, someone else has a fantastic finish to the campaign. I would have said Martin Erdegaard, but I think he maybe went off the boil a little bit in the past couple of weeks in a way that Saka definitely hasn't. And I think what Saka's done recently, sort of a new facet to his game is um, he started fighting back when he receives a bit of harsh treatment from the, uh, from the opposition defenders. And he's obviously known within the game for being a really nice guy, really polite and everyone loves him. But I think he's, also pushing back and rebelling against that reputation a little bit and there were a few little sort of naughty tackles from him on some of the Everton defenders who were giving him plenty more in return and I, I like that from Saka I think he's clearly becoming uh, a player with a bit of a sort of um, a polite way of saying it is a screw you attitude I just don't think he I don't think he's willing to take any nonsense for any opposition defenders anymore and I think that's a massive improvement in his game and I think that's allowing him to seize the initiative in matches and as well as his goal last night, his pressing to to create the second goal and to to rob uh, Idris Aguilera on the edge of the box is is massive. And he's twenty one years old, and I would argue he's the best product the Arsenal Academy has ever produced. And yeah, I think you know he's he's going to get even better, which is the most exciting thing about him. And it does look as though Arsenal are going to be able to time down. And as Ramsdale was saying last night, it, it does seem that he'll be an Arsenal player for for years to come. And that's going to be a, a massive massive boost for the Gunners. Yeah, massive. Absolutely huge uh, when it comes to that. So I look forward to the eventual, fingers crossed, announcement that we'll get and how that will be done. I love the way they announced Emil Smith-Rowe's number 10 uh, and his new deal. So I look forward to seeing how they might uh, go about announcing Bakaya Saka. Um, I feel as though a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about are probably going to be touched upon in questions. Um, so let's let's move to part two um, and uh, we'll tackle your questions there. <laughs> just easier to break the two pieces up by doing that um let's go to uh the questions then uh have you got any readily available or do you want me to to go maybe you, you get going mate you, you, you start uh, well, Guna408 first has said, how goodly is this morning? Which I, I feel as though we may get copyrighted from our blog. Yeah, this is the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wrong podcast, mate. Make sure you go check out Andrew and James's Askcast Extra, of course. Um, but uh, we just talked about Saka. Don Saka on Twitter, at UpTheThing, says, no questions. Just a reminder that Saka is the best right wing in football, which based on what we just talked about, you know, it's it's difficult to find an argument. But I'll go to Red and White Sam, at I am Sam AFC, who says, who drops out of the squad when Gabriel Jesus is back? Poor. That's a question. Because mm. if you um, look at the bench last night, there was no space for Reese Nelson in that squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've still got uh, Jesus to return. I'm looking at one of the defenders on there. Arsenal have Rob Holding, Jakub Kibiur, Takiro Tomiyasu, and uh, Kieran Tierney, obviously. In and among the subs, and those four. Do you need all three? I'd say no, especially given that Tommy Asu can play anywhere across the back line. I don't think you need all three. Uh, it's probably very harsh, but I think Kieran Tierney could be under threat. I think he didn't have the greatest of cameos when he came on last night. There was one instance where he overran the ball and lost possession. I could see Mikel Arteta with his head in his hands, and you know that's not a good sign. And he seems pretty um, disappointed with his current status in the squad in terms of game time and I don't think his long-term future does seem to lie with Arsenal I'm not saying that I know he's going or anything like that at all I'm just yeah. saying that I think you know maybe a move on the summer in the summer sorry could be on the cards for Kieran Tierney so I'd wager him maybe Rob Holding as well it could be another one to drop out again given that Tommy Asti can play that right-sided centre-back role if needs be possibly Kibior but it's hard to draw judgment on him having never really seen him play so, yeah, one of those defenders for me would be the, the ones to drop out because I don't think you can really leave Smith Rowe out of the squad. You can't leave Fabio Vieira out of the squad. You can't leave Eddie out of the squad. So, yeah, one of the defenders would be the, the ones I'm looking at. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think I, I think it's between Tierney and Kivior um, in terms because Rob Holding... This for at least the rest of this season, Arteta, I feel as though, just sees him as the guy that if we're winning a game just by a goal and we're under a bit of pressure, 
you just bring him on and he's a great defender of the 16-yard box. Yeah, he just does that job. Yeah, he just does that job of closing a game really, really well. And so I don't think he'll go. And I think that if if Arteta had a choice between, say, let's say we're at City at the Etihad and we're one goal up or we're drawing and we're really under pressure and you want to try and either keep the point or, or try and go for the win, bringing on holding... I think is more reliable in that moment than bringing on Kivior. So I do lean towards him. And as you said, Tommy Asu's versatility to play right back, left back, left centre back, right centre back, you know, I don't know, striker, if you wanted him to, he probably could play up there to be fair. Um, but that, that asset is just so big and he's overtaken, I think Tierney in terms of if he was starting someone at left back over Zinchenko or Zinchenko wasn't available for whatever reason, I think he would lean on Tommy Asu more than he would Tierney. Um, is I mean, just to touch on Tierney, you said that his long-term future isn't necessarily assured. There's a lot of talk about like the pressure being on Edu this summer to really kind of overhaul the way in which Arsenal move players on and the money which we get for players when we move players on. Uh, it's, it might be an unfair question, but if you were in Edu's shoes, what do you think we should be looking for from a team if we're trying to sell Tierney? Well, Arsenal have, have handled the Kieran Tierney situation pretty smartly in the sense that a couple of years ago they tied him down to a long-term contract and he currently, I think, has three years remaining on that yeah. deal. So he has Arsenal have no incentive to sell unless a good offer comes in. So that means that a good offer is going to have to come in from, from some team. And you look at the teams you might be able to afford a player like Kieran Tierney, given that he's on decent wages at Arsenal now, so he'll expect those when, wherever he goes, I imagine, and that might affect the transfer fee as well. I think his injury record might diminish a potential fee as well, although he's been uh, probably frustratingly for him. He's had his probably one of his better seasons in terms of availability, but he yeah. still, you know, have does have those historic injury problems. And, you know, Arsenal did get to a point where they felt they couldn't rely on him for periods of the season. So I think, you know, you're looking at the, the 40 million mark would probably be what I'd, I'd be looking to demand for Kieran Tierney. But, you know, is there a team out there that's willing to pay that right now? Especially given that he's sort of so far down the pecking order where Tommy Asu's playing ahead of him and he's not really getting much of a look in. And how does that impact Arsenal's negotiating his hand? I don't know, but this is where Eddie comes into his own. His, his whole mantra when it comes to the sales has been, look, judge me when... I sort of have a stronger hand to play in terms of when I've got players under long-term contracts, when I've got players who are the right age, when I've got players who aren't on obscene wages, but on like wages that I think are sort of justifying their, their position in the squad, then maybe talk about it. Our colleagues up at uh, the Chronicle, Lee, Ru- Lee Ryder has said that Newcastle have been offered him and potentially are exploring that. So, definitely want to keep an eye on in the summer and I think you know if Arsenal get around 40 million for him especially given the money that they know Newcastle have you know I think that'd be a really good million for Joe Willock so exactly also yeah. one more thing to, to mention in the Kieran Tierney thing before I, I lose track of myself is if he goes Arsenal probably do need to bring in another left back I don't know if maybe they decide to bring in a right back and then Tommy Asu will be the backup left back or obviously there's a very exciting academy prospect as well in, in Lino Souza and Nuno Tavares is still an Arsenal player too but you know, I think most likely they'd want to bring in a player at least for the short term as a result of Kieran Tierney leaving. So him leaving does have to sort of generate a high enough fee to justify the signing of a new player to come into his position. So there's all that to consider. But yeah, if you ask me what I'd be looking to get for Tierney, 40 mil, especially given that he costs 25. Yeah, 40 mil is probably about a, about a fee I'd be asking for. <laughs> Yeah, I, I said between 35 and 40. So, yeah, we're certainly the, the same bracket. I think there's, there is a lot of factors involved in, in deliberating that price tag. Some supporters have said, no, we should be looking for like 50 million minimum. And I'm just thinking like, I just think there's too many mitigating circumstances around getting a figure that high. Um, that you've I think last summer you definitely could have asked for 50 mil, especially yeah, given I think how so. important he is to ask. He was to Arsenal then. But this year, given how their team have moved on with Zinchenko, I, I just don't think he's, he's worth the same amount. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that whatever valuation there is on him this summer, I think this is the most that we'll get for him. If you were to say keep him until 2024, I don't think you'd get the figure that we'd get this summer. So I think that needs to come into the thinking as well. You don't want to do another Maitland-Niles uh, situation. <laughs> You're now trying to force him out of the club rather than getting 20-odd million from hey, Wolves. Maybe he could have a future as the, the backup left back. <laughs> 
Yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, let's let's go to. I uh, also put some questions in the Discord server, and uh, we've got a couple of responses. Uh, Amira says uh, Trossard fits into our system better than Enketia because he plays like a false nine. Eddie doesn't play like that, but isn't that what a Plan B striker should be? When he plays, would you rather we adapt to his strengths or he adapts to the team? Likewise with Kieran Tierney and Zinni. That's a really good question. Um, so, again, I, I, I agree with the premise of the question in the sense that Eddie Nketiah is a very different striker from Gabi Jesus or Leandro Trossard, and that's absolutely fine. And I think people have used that as a stick to beat Eddie Nketiah with in, in recent weeks, and I don't think that's particularly fair. And I think if Eddie Nketiah hadn't scored the goals he scored around the new year, Arsenal wouldn't be in this title race right now. It's as simple as that. They wouldn't have won games against West Ham, Brighton, Man United. So, you know, he's been a huge part of this title push. And if Arsenal do win the Premier League, I think Eddie Nketiah will be as deserving of a medal as as anyone. So when we talk about this, it's important to to not stray into the territory of criticising Eddie Nketiah for being a different player than Trossard or Martinel uh, or um, Jesus. Having said that, I think this Arsenal team is so unique in the sense that they're all so interlinked. So if one piece of the jigsaw comes out, suddenly everything looks a bit you know, unsettled, I think, is probably the, the right way to describe it. We've seen it, like the, the questioner said there, uh, when Zinchenko comes out of the team and, and Tierney comes in. Tierney's a great player, but he's a different player. And suddenly Arsenal can't do the, the kind of things where Zinchenko's starting at left-back, popping up on the right wing like we saw last night to provide a, a game-breaking pass. It just doesn't happen. So, yeah, I, I think you want a player in the team who's getting as much out of the rest of his teammates as possible. And I think Trossard does that. I think in terms of his interchange with Martinelli, I know you've got a really interesting piece coming up this afternoon on that Trossard and Martinelli link. And maybe we'll have a conversation about that now in a minute about um, the difference differences between the, the two. But I think the reason Jesus was so good early in the season, even when he wasn't scoring, and he didn't score for quite a long time. Let's let's all remember that. It was, I think it was 11 or 12 games. But he was bringing other players into play and Martinelli was a better player because he was on the pitch and Saka was a better player and Erdegaard and Xhaka, etc. They were all better because Gabriel Jesus was there. I don't know if Eddie Nketiah had the same influence. And again, that's not criticising Eddie because I think Jesus is genuinely world-class at what he does. I think if you're looking at, you know, false nines, I think Jesus is the false nine, despite the fact that he wears a number nine on the back of his shirt. And I think yeah. has a much better job at, at replicating that. And in answer to the question, do you need to play up to a player's strengths, I think it's much more important to play up to the team's strengths. And I think a player like Trossard enables the whole team to play much better in a way that Eddie just doesn't quite. And yeah, I think there are games where you need a player like Neddy and Ketia, a player where you need, like, sorry, a games games where you need a player who will just, you know, ideally finish chances, be a penalty box poacher, that kind of stuff. Not that Eddie is just that. I think you know, we need to move the narrative on with Eddie that he's much more than just a, a penalty box poacher. But you know, there are games where you need a more traditional number nine and there are games where you need a, a less traditional number nine. And I think Arsenal tend to have, the more they play these low, low blocks, they tend to need a less traditional number nine. And Trossard probably is the better option, in my opinion, uh, for that. Yeah, I agree. Um, would you start him against Bournemouth? Yes. Yeah, so would I. Um, let's, yeah, that the, the perception around and the relationship between Eddie and Ketty might not be something that we wanted to talk about. Like... Um, What's interesting, I think, is that in the 11 games, so after 14 games, which is when the World Cup came around, Arsenal were five points clear of Manchester City after we beat Wolves 2-0, playing the same amount of games. You fast forward to 25 games, and we're still five points ahead, despite the fact that we've not had Gabriel Jesus throughout that entire period. And that, I think, is a testament to what Gedi Nketiah has done during that period and the level in which he's produced. But what I would say is, is that obviously in the last few games of the run in which he was starting, it, he had had a dip. I think the game against Man City, I think, highlighted when you really need someone to take the big chances in a big moment, he's he, he's not always there. But that said, against Man United, he'd scored twice and did score the goals in a big moment. It's just the consistency I think people want to see more so from their number nine for a team that is fighting for a title, title like Erling Haaland, you know, the amount of goals he's scored, the amount of games he's scored in, and I know he's missed some chances as well, the big one at Nottingham Forest most recently, the, the biggest of the lot, arguably. Yeah, terrible player. Um, but what what do you make of kind of this argument that Martinelli and Nketiah 
doesn't work. Like, it just they, and they don't emphasize each other. Um, I think we saw around the Christmas period that that's not necessarily 100% true because mm-hmm. West Ham, they both scored, Brighton, they both scored. Um, what was the game after that? It was Newcastle after that. So yeah. I think it depends on the kind of games Arsenal play. Yeah. So when they're up against low blocks like Newcastle, Brentford, Everton on both occasions, uh, Leicester, Villa to an extent, a striker like Trossard makes more sense because he's pulling defenders out of position. But in games where it's a bit more stretched, I personally would want Eddie and Ketia there filling up those central spaces and occupying the, the central defenders because then you get more space for the wide players to exploit when the opposition fullbacks come forward. And Brighton is a good example of that. West Ham defended very deep, but Arsenal, you know, were able to to sort of I think it was Erdegaard missed hit a shot and then Saka scored. And it was one of them yeah. where you know, fortune was on Arsenal's side that night and we talk about getting lucky, but, you know, I don't know if you can call it getting lucky, but, you know, the way they scored was was fortunate, I think. And, yeah, it was... Um, I've forgotten what your original question was. Sorry, I'm trying to make a point of that. A lot of people have suggested that, like, you know, um, Nketiah and um, Martinelli's passing, yes. for instance. Yes. They, they just they don't really pass to each other and that's a problem. So my, my, my thing is when Nketiah plays in the team, Martinelli tends to stay very wide on the left and you don't see him yeah. popping up all over the pitch as much. And I think Martinelli's at his best when he's free and can interchange. And in the build-up to Saka's goal last night, Martinelli's there playing a 1-2 with Zinchenko on the right wing. Um, he pops up in the number nine for both of his goals, but he's also on the left wing providing crosses and roasting uh, Seamus Coleman in the first half at points. So... I think that's when you get the best out of Martinelli. And I don't think Nketiah necessarily does that um, in terms of the interchange, just because he wants to say central, he wants to be where the goals are. And that's totally fine. So I don't think Nketiah brings best out of Martinelli. I think um, maybe a more traditional left wing will bring the best out of Eddie Nketiah as well. Uh, maybe if you swap them, so sack on the left wing or something like that, you'd see more the best of Eddie Nketiah. But um, I don't know if they can't play together. But I think if they do play together, you have to accept that maybe you're not going to see the very best of Martinelli, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think for me, like the and what I think we've learned over the last two games in particular is that the the thesis of their passing combinations are the big reason as to why it doesn't necessarily work. I don't agree with that, and I think the last two games in particular have proven that point. For me, it's all about their positioning and the areas in which they occupy on the pitch that show why Trossard starting at centre-forward is so much more beneficial to Martinelli. And there's the argument I was kind of, again, emphasised against Leicester because in all of the games that Martinelli and Nketiah started together, in none of them did they get into double digits for passing combinations at all. It was always single digits between the two of them. And in fact, against Manchester United, they didn't pass to each other once throughout the entire game. And I think that emphasised the whole argument of, they just don't work together because they're not playing together. And then when they played against Leicester, Trossard started at centre-forward and Martinelli played on the left wing and they immediately broke into double digits in terms of passing combinations. And most notably, one of those passes was the assist that led to the goal. So immediately you've got kind of this evidence from that single game going, well, look at that. But they're passing together and we're scoring from it. Well, in last night's game, Trossard and Martinelli didn't pass to each other in the entire game. And actually, it's the positioning of the two that I think is the biggest impact into why that works more kindly with one another. Because Trossard, being more naturally a left-sided player who likes to play in that role, tends to skew to the left-hand side. And if you look at their average passing position, they're actually on top of each other, Martinelli and Trossard, because they they occupy the same spaces on that left-hand side so often. But they're not doing it in a way that they get into each other's way. They're doing it in such an understanding that when one player is in a certain half space, the other player is either wide or moving centrally around them. They're not getting in each other's way, which happened, of course, in the game against Leicester, where Trossard moved to the left wing to pick up the long ball from Gabriel. Martinelli ran centrally and the pass came through. What you can't see is I'm, I've got basically a tactics board beneath me, which is just a blanket <laughs> on my desk, which I'm moving my arms around as I talk through this. But like, what, what was last night was so key and as you say, I've got a piece that's, that will be out by the time this goes out that you can see is there's a couple of opportunities. The first goal, um, in, uh, the sorry, the second goal where Martinelli picks up the ball from Saka. Trossard's way out on the left wing and Martinelli's come all the way central to support Saka. 
because Trossard's moved into his area and Martinelli's recognised that and taken up the space entry. There's also a chance in the second half that Martinelli should do better. And this is where I'm a little bit critical of Martinelli because I think sometimes he's a bit too greedy. And, he, and one of the things that he develops and learns is that I think he needs to learn more spatially around him what opportunities are there to pass to. And there's an opportunity where Arsenal are through on goal. Trossard peels off to the left with a clear passing lane to him. Xhaka and Saka are both to the right of him with two clear passing lanes on the right. And he takes a long shot and it gets blocked. And I think it goes out for a corner. But there was a great opportunity to play in Trossard or play in Saka. And it's just because we've got a really young team, we are going to do those things. Like we are going to, they are going to be a bit greedy. They are going to make the wrong choices at times because they haven't yet learned completely how to refine their gains. But yeah, I know I've gone off on a bit of a, a, a long <laughs> chat about that. But I think for people need to understand in short that it's the positional awareness and where they are on the pitch that's the bigger indication of why the relationship between Trossard and Martinelli works more so than how many passes are being played between the two. Yeah, I mean, we promised negativity in the second half of the podcast and here's Tom bodying Martinelli <laughs> after scoring twice. What's the guy got to do? What's the guy got to do? <laughs> but no, look, I, there'll be moments in big games where... Uh, that opportunity will come forwards, and I hope that he learns from that and, and and plays in the in the ball. The same way that I wish Xhaka had played in um, Martinelli. I think was it against Man City or Brentford? I can't remember which game it was. It might have been Man City. 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 Yeah, and, and I wish he'd have just you know taken that opportunity. But it's that sometimes I always think we want to either overplay it or we don't play it enough, and it's just finding the refinement in this team, and that will come the longer they play together, and as I said, it's it's still a very, very young side. Uh, sticking uh, still with uh, the Martinelli and Ketty thing, but moving on the conversation slightly, Mike on Twitter at uh, Spiz896 says, bearing in mind how Martinelli's impact and performances have improved since Eddie's hasn't featured in the starting eleven, would you rather keep Balogun or Nketiah next season? <laughs> 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 oh man, I didn't see that coming. Uh, I think I still rather have Eddie because I think I know you can rely on him in in games, and I think he's shown that he can come in and and do a job. And I think Eddie deserves a shot at the Champions League, given how well he's played. And if mm. if he wins you a Premier League title, then I don't think it's necessarily fair to get rid of him. And you'd be gambling on Balogun. You'd be gambling on is he good enough to play at the level Arsenal require? Whereas with Eddie, you know that he is. So, yeah, I think that would be my answer. I'd, I'd stick with Eddie, but um, it's it's definitely a close call because Balogun's doing so well out in France, you can't really, yeah. can't really say anything, can you? Yeah, my question at the moment to people who ask that question is, why do we have to choose? Like, I feel like the next season you can bring Balogun back because you think about how long Gabriel Jesus has been out for. It's very easy that you can lose a player for an extended period. And I know that most teams don't tend to have three strikers. If you look at City, they've got Haaland and Alvarez. If you look at Chelsea, oh, Chelsea's a bad example because they've bought a billion forwards. But even then, I mean, they've got, what, you've got Aubameyang and you've got Havertz available because Breuer is, is injured. And they brought in Aubameyang in that January window in response to kind of that Breuer injury. So I, I think, did they bring him in January or was it the summer? No, the summer, yeah. It was the summer, wasn't it? Well, yeah. But I just think that when you look at the number of top teams that have Richarlison and Kane, you know, they don't have any other striker outside of those two. I mean, Liverpool, you've got Nunez right now, but then you've got a number of versatile forwards that can play there. Firmino's not really playing anywhere and not playing all that often, but Jota can play at centre forward. Salah could play at centre forward. And that's a bit like us. We've got, you know, Nketiah and, uh, and Jesus, and then you've got Trossard, who can play at centre-forward. Martinelli, who can play at centre-forward. And I think that the dynamic of that works. But I wouldn't mind having Maligan in the squad next season on top of him. Yeah, my argument against that is the reason we're seeing how good Balogun is is because he's playing week in, week out, and he's getting better. Mm. And he obviously had that half-season at Borough where it didn't quite go as well as he would have hoped. And he's come back and gone out to France, and he's doing really well out there. So mm -hmm. I wonder if if maybe he'll um, he'll be someone who um, does go out on loan next season or they sell him. I, I personally wouldn't like to see him stick around at Arsenal next season if he's going to be third choice, just because I think he really needs game time. And I think Arteta's shown that he's not really the biggest rotator in the world. And I think 10 minutes here and there doesn't really do much for Balogun. We saw this with Nketiah last season where 10 minutes here or there didn't really do much for him. And then suddenly he got a run in the team starting each week then you see how good a player Eddie Nketiah is. If Balogun's behind Nketiah and Jesus, it's just not going to happen, I don't think. And especially given how well Trossard's 
done in the false nine role. And obviously, as you said there, Marcinelli can play there too. Arsenal are set for strikers right now. And I think maybe loan him out again. You know, we've had this discussion before, maybe sell with a buyback or something like that. And then you sort of start to see, oh, maybe this guy can become a player who can contribute to Arsenal. But for now, I think just don't bring him back into the fold just yet unless one of the forwards leaves in the summer. I mean, I've seen suggestions. I think David Ornstein was speaking that maybe a centre-forward is still on the agenda this summer, which seems mad considering the options we have. But I suppose you can never rule out depending on who moves on. Um, let's go to, I think we've got a couple more. Um, Mike Dom, who's, uh, who's at Mike Dom Lad on Twitter, says, how good is it to have Smith-Rowe back? Where does uh, a fit Smith-Rowe fit into our system? He replaced Bakayo, but was all over the place like all of our front three are. Is this our new norm? I'm liking it. Yeah, um, it's great to have Smith-Rowe back. And I think the biggest cheer of the night was probably when he came on. It was really nice to see. I think everyone was delighted to have him back. Yeah. Arteta was quite interesting. Jesus comes on, they're going to deafen everyone. Oh my gosh, that's going to be, be insane. <laughs> yeah. I think Arteta was quite interesting on this a few weeks ago in a press conference when he was asked, you know, what is uh, Smith-Rowe's best position? And it's a debate we've had pretty much since he came into the team. Some people think he's a right winger. Some people think he's a left winger. Some people think he's a false nine. Arteta thinks he's best in the attacking midfield position, and I understand that as meaning central in one of the eights. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's where Arteta sees a Smith Road going forward. Maybe if you look at Granit Xhaka potentially moving on, is there a place in him there? I don't know. But, yeah, that that I think, you know, if you look at what City have in terms of players like Bernardo Silva, who can pop up in any position, uh, they used to have it with David Silva as well. Sometimes we'll play on the wing, sometimes we'll play in the middle. Phil Foden's another one, plays on the wing sometimes, plays up front sometimes, plays in the middle sometimes. I don't think it's if there's much point in, in limiting Emil Smith-Rowe's position to just one. Personally, I find him at his best on the left wing because I think he's a really good dribbler and I think when you can isolate him 1v1 with fullbacks, he's at his most dangerous. But I'm not going to claim to know more about football than Mikel Arteta as much as I'd like to. So, yeah, I think he... Clearly knows what's best for Smith Rowe. The most important thing for Smith Rowe, though, is keep fit. You know, if you're if he's able to be involved between now and the end of the season for Arsenal and make an impact in terms of coming off the bench, maybe even scoring a goal or two because he had a decent chance last night and he could have scored, then suddenly Arsenal's squad looks really, really strong. And again, we talk about Balogun coming back, but you look how many forwards they have and how many quality options they have in that final third. And Mill Smith Rowe is definitely on that level when he's fit. But staying fit is the most important thing for him. And yeah, I think he's certainly someone who can fit into that sort of rotational style of play because he's so good at combining little one-twos on the edge of the box. Maybe not the eye of the needle stuff like Erdegaard and Zinchenko, but little one-twos, little give and goes on the edge of the box. He's so good at that. So I'd love to see him back in the Arsenal squad if possible. And fingers crossed he has the role to play between now and the end of the season. Uh, I, it's it's genuinely such a, a positive place to be when you're f- where we are in the table. Where we've maintained that five point gap after uh, eleven more fixtures since the World Cup um, finished, and you've got Smith Rowe coming back, and now we've got Gabriel Jesus potentially coming back very soon. You reported, of course, that we hopefully will see him before the international break. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we'll see him a couple of games, maybe before then. Maybe we'll get to see him in, in that second Europa League leg, and that's how we start to ease him in. Who knows? Maybe he's, he's further ahead than Arsenal wanting to let on, which, you know, from the sounds of things, they are trying to keep it as quiet as, as they feasibly can because th- that pressure and the expectation just grows so quickly once you start talking about a player like him coming back. Um, Partey, for the most part, has been, you know, it started to become more available. You know, I know we missed him in the City game. I know we missed him in the United game early in the season. But over the course of the whole season, we've had him for quite, you know, the majority of it, touch wood. So, and it was interesting, obviously, I think when he came on for Jorginho, who, from the sounds of things, wasn't 100% well yesterday. Um, in the second half, Partey's progression uh, came back. And I think we saw, in a way, what we've missed. I know Jorginho's been great, and I don't want to take anything away from how excellent I think he's been. But Jorginho, he's not the same type of player as Partey. There are differences in their game. And I think Partey always wants to go forwards, always wants to force the pass, uh, especially into the, the likes of Bakaya Saka on the right-hand side. And I think we saw that with his kind of the way he could be so bullish in midfield, but also intelligent with, with his passing. So yeah, that that's also a big plus. Um, last point before we wrap up, obviously we won't talk on the podcast until after Bournemouth on Saturday. How do you feel we're going to approach it? Do you think we'll make any changes at all? I think maybe Partey for Jorginho is the only one I really see happening. 
And is that a surprise? Because of you know, I, I, when I when we did the press conference ahead of uh, yesterday's game, Arteta said that he was going to make he was going to try and use his squad in the next couple of games. He said, which would be Everton and Bournemouth. So maybe we're underestimating how much we might see different on Saturday. I think it's important to remember that Arsenal's next game after that is a Europa League game where a lot of those squad players will probably play no matter mm. what. So you'd assume Kivio will come in for his debut. You'd assume Tierney will be in the squad. Uh, Tomiassi, Turner, yeah. uh, Jorginho will probably play. Uh, Vieira will probably play. Maybe Smith-Rowe will get a start. I don't know. But um, those are the kind of changes I'd expect to see. I don't think Nketi is fully fit, so I'd be shocked mm-hmm. if he came back in. I don't think Arsenal should really alter the front three anyway. And yeah, if you bear in mind that most of the players who probably, if you know, if they start on Wednesday and then play again on Saturday, chances are they'll get the rest on the Thursday. So that's why I don't think we'd see, pardon me, too many changes um, between Wednesday and, and Saturday for Bournemouth. I think Arteta will go strong. He loves going strong, especially in league games. So I can't see him making too many changes. Maybe sneaky suspicion, Vieira for Xhaka. Just given the fact that I don't think Bournemouth midfield is going to cause Arsenal too many problems physically, but again, that's a sneaky suspicion from me, not really based off any fact or insight. It's just just an idea that I had, but not confident. And yeah, I think Partey for Jorginho is the obvious change. Beyond that, I'd be surprised if we see too many. Yeah, and I think you know if you're going to bring in Vieira, uh, Vieira to the team, I think Partey's mobility and you know greater coverage as a sole DM probably gives you that yeah, ability to, to switch in Vieira. So, yeah, maybe two changes uh, to the starting 11. We'll have to wait and see. I agree. I, you know, I think there's a chance to throw Vieira in here um, and then lead that into a you know a back-to-back games of him playing against Sporting as well and give Xhaka a, a much-needed and deserved rest as well. He's played every single game you can think of. So, yeah, indeed, it's always a great chance to, to use him. But we'll have to wait and see. I'm going to push you for a scoreline, though. Prediction. Uh, you know I hate these, but uh, mm-hmm. let's go three 0 to Arsenal. Uh, I mm. I know Bournemouth have you know been can't terrible. Quite write them off. I mean they've not been great, but um, they, yeah. they, I mean they have pulled off a few decent results in the league this season. But if you can't beat Bournemouth at home, then you've got no business winning the Premier League, in my opinion. So yeah, I think that's the the kind of game Arsenal need to win and win handsomely. So three 0 to the Arsenal, I'm saying. Looking back now, they've won one of their last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Well, two in twelve, so one in eleven games they've won so far. So prepare yourselves, people. <laughs> you know how these records go. Um, but no, thank you everybody for listening. I really appreciate your time and your questions, of course, that you've sent in via social media. Um, make sure you're following Kyra on Twitter at KyraKyle97. Follow myself at Tom Cantor Media. You can follow all of our written work over at football.london. Um, plenty of stuff in the reaction to yesterday's win and, of course, all the build-up to the game at the weekend. Kaya, thank you for your time. Any final thoughts before you wrap up? Uh, my pleasure. No, nothing apart from press conferences tomorrow. So join us for live coverage of that from London Colney, Mikel Arteta, I'm sure, giving us very detailed team news updates mm. ahead of the Bournemouth game, but uh, then Bournemouth coming up on Saturday. And we're going to Lisbon next week as well. So going to be a very exciting few weeks coming up on Football London. And yeah, just stay tuned for, for all the updates as we get them. Thank you, people, for listening. Drop a like, subscribe, leave a review on Spotify and uh, and iTunes as well. We very much appreciate it. And you can always send your feedback to either of us on social media. We appreciate it. Uh, have a fantastic rest of your week. Look forward to the weekend. And uh, as always, keep following us down the Arsenal way with our views from the clock end.